Uh, this, is, this is it. This is week 12 of Foundations. Uh, I can't believe we've already been through, uh, after tonight, 12 sessions. I appreciate those of you who have uh, stuck with it all summer long uh, to make it to this point. Thank you for hanging in there uh, with us. I've really enjoyed uh, studying for and, and preaching these messages and hearing the messages from Pastor Dave and Pastor John. I hope you all have as well. But tonight is the last one. And so, as you can see there in the title, the title is Last Things. If you've ever read a book or, or watched a movie, some movies are, and books have really, really great conclusions. They really wrap up the story well. There are some other stories, though, other movies and maybe books that, that you read and you get to the very end and it just kind of leaves you hanging, right? You're just like, I, I thought this was going to conclude. I thought this was going to tell me the solution to the problem. I thought this was going to give me some type of uh, reason why I've been reading this whole book, right? Or why I've been watching this entire movie. Uh, to me, it always feels like a, a big waste of time when I've, I, I sit and I watch a movie for, for two, three hours, and then at the very end of it, it's like, why did I just spend all my time watching that? It didn't give me anything at the end that helped me resolve the story. Have you all ever experienced that before? Well, thankfully, with, with the Scripture, God does not leave us hanging. He doesn't leave us wondering What's going to happen? We understand, uh, looking in Genesis, uh, where we come from. We understand that God has always been, and we've walked through many of the truths of Scripture over the last few months. Um, but oftentimes when it comes to the topic of last things or end times, uh, some people think it's not that important because, hey, whatever is going to happen is going to happen, right? And I'm just kind of here and along for the ride. But when you look at Scripture... Anywhere from a quarter of Scripture all the way up to 45%, depending on how you define it, uh, of the Bible deals with last things. About 25% is directly prophetic, and the other 20 or so percent uh, that make up the 45% um, have, something to, have something to do with last things. So if, if we as believers, who, as we've established in this series, we should all be students of what the Bible teaches— if we want to be faithful students of God's Word, we have to study last things. We have to understand what God has taught us about how this story is going to conclude. And so, and the good news for us is that that story is awesome when it wraps up, right? It has a really good conclusion for those of us who, who follow Christ. Um, the second coming of Christ is one of the most frequently mentioned truths in the New Testament. In the 210 chapters... In the New Testament, that's all the New Testament is 210 chapters, uh, the return of Christ is mentioned 318 times, right? And that's just in the New Testament. In the Old Testament, many of the, of the prophets talk about uh, the messianic reign over the world, the return of the Messiah. And so all of Scripture points us to look to the end of the book, right? It's, it's pointing us to something that will resolve the human sin problem, something that will resolve the problem of sin and death and decay that we see all around us. So this, this longing that we see in ourselves, that we see in our culture, that we see in our uh, art and our media for some type of human utopia, right? We see that longing even in, in politics. We just need to find the right political system. We need to find the right political leader that will bring us to that utopian place which we've discussed is not going to happen this side of heaven, but that longing for utopia is a good one, right? And it's a longing that will someday be fulfilled, right? That is a desire that someday God, God will meet. And as we look at the different aspects of Bible prophecy and of last things, uh, we'll, we'll understand that when the world begins to wind down, we're not going to be looking so much for something to happen, but we're waiting for someone to arrive, right? Sometimes we, we get really caught up with, um, you know, our, our prophecy timelines and our charts and our figures, and those have their place. Um, and if you all want to learn more about that, we just did a series on Revelation not too long ago that you can listen to. But for tonight's sake, A, I can't run through everything that has to do with uh, prophetic scripture, but I, I wanted us to, to have a, a basic understanding of the, of the big picture about what is the message that God is trying to communicate with us about final things, 
What is the purpose? What is the reason for studying these things? And again, how, how does that relate to you and me today? Because it, it's, it's not just some abstract thing that, okay, we, we think this is what's going to happen at this time. No, this understanding of, of God concluding the story is essential for us to have, again, a, a healthy understanding of Scripture and a proper walk with God. So when we understand what the Bible teaches about last things, we will understand that, first of all, God is the author and hero of history. God is the author and hero of history. As we understand, as we go through what the Bible teaches us about last things, one of the main things that really becomes evident is that God is in control. Right? Oftentimes when we look around at the world, sometimes when we look at our own lives, we, we feel like there's, there's only chaos, right? It feels like no one has control of anything. Just things are crazy, things get worse. How is all of this going to come together? But over and over and over again in the Bible, we, we see, we're reminded of the truth that God is in control. And so God, in his mercy, through the Bible, he's, he's given us some insight into what he's going to do in human history. He's given us some insight to understand that, hey, don't be afraid. I have this under control. You know, oftentimes when we see what happens in the world, we become afraid. We get nervous. We don't know what's going to happen. But we as believers, as we walk through Scripture, we, we understand that God is never up in heaven wringing his hands, wondering how he's going to resolve all the mess that we are making down here. Right? God never has to call an emergency session of the Trinity and say, hey, we didn't see this coming. What do we do now? Right? Like, they just keep getting more and more crazy. How are we going to fix this issue? Right? God has, has never been in that situation. God has always been, and he always will be, in control. And as we study what the Bible says about last things, that should be our foundation because when we understand that he is in control, we understand that he is going to make it all work together for good. And so God is always in control. And so for us, that should give us some certainty as, as believers because we understand that our God is in control. We understand that our God has promised us a lot of things. Like if we are saved, we understand where we will end up. We understand what will happen to us when we die. And when we understand what will happen in our future— then we can focus on living for God in the present. But if I don't know what's going to happen in the future, then I become worried, I become afraid, I feel like I have to solve all these problems, right? And I, and I can't focus on the here and now. But God has told us, hey, you don't have to worry about wrapping all this up. I have got this under control. And that gives us the confidence and peace that we need to live for Christ today. So God is the author and hero of history and, and with that, Jesus brings the story of the Bible full circle, right? We understand that he is the author of it all. He is in control, but he, he is also the main character, right? God is the main character of Scripture. Jesus is the main subject of what the Bible teaches about last things. Um, whenever Jesus brings the story full circle with his return, we will see the restoration of creation, um, the storyline of, of Scripture begins in Genesis in an innocent garden, right? and it ends in Revelation in a garden city. In Genesis, we see the creation of the heavens and the earth. In Revelation, we see the creation of a new heaven and a new earth. Um, in Genesis, we see the first Adam reigning on earth, and in Revelation, we see Jesus, the last Adam, reigning in glory. In Genesis, we see an earthly bride brought to to the first Adam, Eve, but in Revelation we see a heavenly bride, the church, brought to the Lord Jesus, the last Adam. In Genesis we see the beginning of death and the curse, but in Revelation we see the end of death. We see the end of sin. We see the, the curse finally defeated. In Genesis, man is driven from God's face in sin, but in Revelation we see God's face in glory. We see him face to face and our fellowship is restored. In Genesis, Satan appears for the very first time. And in Revelation, he appears for the very last time, never to be seen again. 
So we see that Jesus brings the story of creation all together, and then we see the reign of Jesus as the Messiah. Because his, his second coming will be very different than the first, right? With the first arrival of Jesus, hardly anyone knew about it. Just some shepherds and Mary and the people in her town, right? Joseph. But his second coming will be much, much different, right? He is going to break through the clouds on a white horse. His robe is going to be dipped in blood. His name is going to be tattooed on his thigh. And the and, and Bible says that every eye on earth will see him, right? No one will miss the second coming of Jesus. When he, when he first came, he, he was coming to be crucified. But when he comes back again, he's going to come to be coronated as king of earth, right? Whenever he first came, he was, he was coming to hang on a tree. But the second time, he'll be coming to sit on a throne. Before, when he came, he, he came and stood before Pilate to be judged. But whenever Jesus comes back, Pilate will stand before Jesus and be judged for all of eternity. Right? His, his second coming will be radically different than the first time. The, the first time Jesus came, he, he came as a humble servant. But when he comes back again, he will come as our conquering, victorious king. And so we see that that leads into our second point, that we have to understand that the last thing should show us that today is the day of salvation. And the reason for that is because his return is imminent. In Acts 1.11, this is giving the account of once Jesus ascends from earth to go back up into heaven, and some angels appear to the disciples and say, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who is taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go to heaven. The New Testament is consistent in its anticipation that Jesus can return at any moment. Right? In all of the New Testament, after Jesus goes back up into heaven, the, the message in almost every single book is that Jesus is coming back, and he's coming back very, very soon, so be ready. James, uh, the half-brother of Jesus, he wrote what was probably the earliest of the New Testament epistles. He, he told his readers that Christ was coming back at any point. It says in James chapter 5, verse 7 through 9, he says, Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. In Revelations 1, chapter 3, um, John writes that the time is near, right? So over and over again in the New Testament in Scripture, we see that the Bible is urging us to recognize that we need to stop thinking about the return of Christ as some far-off, far-away event, right? We need to be living in light of the truth that Christ can come back today. And if you've grown up in church, you've probably heard that your whole life, Right? He can come back at any moment. He can come back any time now, right? And we keep waiting and we keep waiting. But it's true. There's nothing that is preventing Christ from coming back right now. And so that should create in us a sense of urgency, right? It's good to have plans for your life, right? The Bible is full of wisdom passages about making plans to live your life well. But we as believers need to understand that our, our first priority is, is not to plan so much our retirement, but our eternity, right? And when Christ comes back, if he were to come back today, would you be ashamed at his coming? Or would you be rejoicing that he would be finding you as a good and faithful servant? And so because Christ is coming back so soon, the Bible teaches that there is a limited window of opportunity to be saved, Right? right now, in this period that we are in, this is the only chance of salvation that people have. Once Christ comes back, that's it. Right? Your choice will have been made. And so this time, before his return, is, is the only window of opportunity that you, I, anyone on earth has in order to accept and believe the gospel. That's why Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 2, he says, Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. 
So again, that's why we see God sincerely inviting everyone to seek refuge from his coming wrath. Right? That's what salvation is, and that's what we need to understand when we present the gospel, is that we are not just inviting people to live a, a more comfortable, pleasing life now. We need to communicate in the gospel that God's wrath is coming soon, and that there is a limited window of opportunity to believe it. And so we, in our presentations of the gospel, need to understand that while we cannot obviously push anyone to believe, we need to share the gospel with a sense of urgency. Because your presentation of the gospel to someone could be their only and their first and their last opportunity to hear the gospel. We need to present the gospel with a sense of urgency because the, the window is small and it's getting smaller every single day. One thing that really stood out to me um, that, that shows that this is a time of, of patience, this is a time of God offering humanity a chance of salvation, is in the very beginning of the ministry of Jesus. In, in Luke chapter 4, verses 16 through 19, it's the very beginning of the ministry of Christ. And after he comes back from his uh, temptation in the wilderness, he, he walks to his local synagogue and the Bible says, as his custom was, it was his turn to read that day, and the prophet Isaiah was to be read. And so he, he walks up to the scripture, and, and he reads, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor." And then he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down, and everyone was watching him. And the reason why that's significant is because Jesus is quoting Isaiah 61, verse 1 through 2, except Jesus doesn't finish reading verse 2. The last part of verse 2 in Isaiah 61 says, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord, which is what Jesus read, but then he left off, and the day of vengeance of our God. That was a really short reading for a synagogue reading, right? He's, he just read a few verses, and he stops mid-verse, and then he sits down. And everyone's watching Jesus, wondering why he did that. Why, why didn't he finish? And the Bible says everyone's just astonished at what, he, at what he did. So the reason why Christ didn't finish that verse is because the arrival of the Messiah is a, is a two-part story. Right? The Jews grew up believing that it was a one-part story. That's why everyone was so confused when Jesus showed up. He was, he was humble. He didn't look like royalty. He didn't act like royalty. There was nothing powerful or magnificent seemingly about him. Right? He was just a regular, average-looking dude who walked around serving other people. He wasn't defeating the Romans. He wasn't casting off uh, all the oppressors of the Jews. He wasn't doing all the things they thought the Messiah was going to do because they thought that his arrival to bring salvation and judgment was the same event. But instead, Jesus arrives and says, I'm only here right now to bring salvation. This is the time of salvation that you and I have, have been given. And he says in John chapter 12, verses 47 through 48, Jesus says, if anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do, I do not judge him, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. And in verse 48, the one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. Right? Jesus makes it clear from the beginning of his ministry that this time is a time of salvation, but the day of judgment is, is coming. Right? That's why the Jews were so confused with Jesus. They thought the arrival of salvation and judgment was the same event, that Christ was going to come and offer the way of salvation from sins and establish his reign in Israel and set up his earthly kingdom and judge all of their enemies. But instead, Jesus stops mid-verse, so to speak, and says, no, this right now is an opportunity for the world to hear the gospel and be saved. But judgment will come later. And so we live in a great age of grace and patience right now. Right? You and I right now are, are in that period 
where we have the knowledge of what Jesus has already done for us, but we also have the knowledge that judgment is coming soon. And so we have to have that urgency that Paul and all the authors of Scripture and the New Testament urge us to say that today is the day of salvation, right? When we share the gospel with someone, again, we, we can't force them to believe. We can't force them to understand. But we need to share it not with a sense of, hey, if you want to do this, fine, but you'll have time later. We don't know that, right? We need to share with the urgency of, hey, you could die at any moment. Christ could come back at any moment. There is an urgency to this message that you have to understand that your soul is on the line, right? And so when we understand that Christ's return is imminent, our urgency to share the gospel should go hand in hand with that. So God is the author and hero of history. Today is the day of salvation. And then point number three, judgment day is coming. And so whenever Christ does come back, whenever his return is reality, then judgment day will be here. Um, Jesus will judge all of humanity. For believers, this will be a time of reward. Uh, but for unbelievers, this will be a time of punishment. If you all would turn with me to Matthew 25, um, this is one of the key passages whenever Jesus himself is, is telling us about his future judgment on mankind. We'll be in Matthew chapter 25, and we'll start in verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. Christ will separate the believers from the unbelievers. Verse 33, and he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. So first here we see God's judgment on, on believers, right? And whenever you and I stand before the judgment seat of God as, as Christians, the judgment will not be a choice of heaven or hell, but God will judge our works and reward us according to our works. What I think is interesting is that the criteria by which Christ judges us here in this passage is how we treat the brothers and sisters of Christ, right? Christ doesn't, in other passages he does, but in, in this context, who is Christ talking about when he is giving out this judgment? He's saying, how you have treated others is how I will judge you. And this ties in with what we talked about with the doctrine of the church, right? Christ didn't just save us for a relationship with him. He saved us for a relationship with others. And one of the ways that we understand, one of the evidences of our salvation that we have been saved is not just that we can say, I love Jesus, but that we can look at each other and say, I love you as well. And so Christ says, whenever we stand before him in judgment, if we show up having never loved the brethren, having never loved uh, the bride of Christ, that we will be judged for it. But he is gauging, his criteria for judging us is that we have not, or whether we have or not, loved the church. And that leads into the time of punishment for the unbelievers in verse 41. Then he will say to those on the left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick, and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry, or thirsty, or a stranger, or naked, or sick, or in prison, and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them, saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, 
but the righteous into eternal life. Again, what is the criteria here? All right, obviously, you and I need to have a personal relationship with Jesus, but these people show up calling Jesus Lord, and they're still being cast away. Right? And, it, and the way that Christ judges them is saying, hey, you can say that you love me, you can call me Lord, but your actions never reflected it. You can't tell me that I'm in love with, with Jesus and not be in love with his church. Right? And we see here, again, this is a hard passage to read, isn't it? Every time I'm, I've read passages like this in Scripture, it gets me a little tense, right? Because this is, this is so final, right? This is so permanent, Right? There is no going back when you're at this point. It's either you're in or you're out. And one of the evidences, one of the proofs of salvation that we see is that if you love Jesus, you will love and serve his people. And so um, this should be an encouragement for us as believers that if we love Jesus, if we are saved, if we are serving his church, that we will enter into eternal life. But this is also a severe warning, isn't it? That those who are not trusting in Christ those who are not loving his bride are facing severe judgment. So us showing up and saying, hey, we're Americans or we are self-proclaimed Christians, we grew up in the Bible Belt, is not going to save anyone, right? It's only that personal relationship with Jesus and how that has fleshed out into action in your life. And so with that comes the reality of hell, right? Something that makes our culture very uncomfortable, Something that is very controversial now, even among some Christian circles, is whether or not hell is real. But again, we've talked about this in our study of, of Scripture. When you take the Bible at its word, the, the teaching of hell is inescapable, right? No one likes to talk about it. It's uncomfortable. No one should be happy talking about it, right? But it is, it is a fact that Scripture teaches over and over and over again that the enemies of God will find final judgment in a place called hell. Romans 6.23, right? The wages of sin is death. It's not just talking about physical death there. It's talking about permanent spiritual death. So there are, there are two deaths that are possible for people, right? Almost everyone here, unless God returns before that time, we will all have the experience of the first death, that physical death of our bodies dying. But there's also the potential for a second death, right? If, if someone arrives at the judgment seat of Christ, not trusting in Christ for salvation, the Bible teaches that there is a, a second death, a permanent, eternal death that is inescapable. So for, for believers, we will all experience the first death, but we will never experience the second one. But the fact is, is that there is a place called hell. In Revelation chapter 20, Verses 11 through 15, the Bible talks about the judgment scene as well. It says, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it. From his presence earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. And books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books, according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Again, that's a, that's a sobering passage to read, right? The Bible teaches that believers, we understand that the first death for us is simply the gateway to eternal life, right? But for those who are not trusting in Christ, the first death is the best death they're going to have because they have a second, more permanent, even worse death awaiting them on the other side. So the judgment of hell, Jesus warns, is final and it cannot be changed. Um, so hell should weigh heavily on the hearts of believers. Again, the, this should drive us to action, right? This should not just make us feel sad or bad or afraid. This should drive us to more passionately, more fervently, more regularly share the gospel. Because this is scary, right? There are a lot of scary things in life, 
but eternal separation from God is the most terrifying of them all. And, I, and the Bible teaches that we should not even let our enemies go there, right? Everyone deserves to hear the gospel to avoid this. God, as, as we just read, God did not design hell for humanity, right? God created man and woman in his own image. God does not want to cast his own image into eternal judgment. But if we do not accept the salvation of Christ, then we will have to bear that punishment for all eternity. And again, the Bible is clear over and over again that that place is hell. And so what makes hell hell? It's not just that it's hot, it's not just that it's scarier, that it's dark. Hell is what it is because of the absence of a person. Hell is hell because God is going to leave you alone forever. Right? Here on earth, there is no place that, that we can go from God's presence. Right? God has promised believers that he will never leave us or forsake us. But hell is what it is, not just because it's some scary, dark place. Hell is what it is because God is not there. God will abandon people there. Again, that's a terrifying thought to think, the finality and severity of that. But for those of us who are trusting in Christ for salvation, those of us who understand that apart from Christ, we are destined for this, and so we repent of our sins and we trust in Christ to save us, for us, the Bible is also very encouraging. and says that we have the hope of heaven. Right? Paul says that if in this life only we have hope, then we are the most miserable people of them all, right? Because we have nothing to look forward to. But thankfully, the Bible teaches that God has prepared a place for us. In John 14, 3, Jesus is telling his disciples, And if I go and, and prepare a place for you, I will come again, and I will take you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. In Titus 2, 13, the Bible says, Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And First John chapter 3, verse 2 and 3, John writes, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what, he, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. Because when we shall see him as he is, and everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself because he is pure. Right? We have this hope that not just that we'll be free from pain or free from suffering or that we'll be uh, younger or older or wiser or whatever. Heaven is going to be heaven because, again, of a person. We will be with Jesus forever. Instead of being separated from God, we will be able to see God face to face. We will be able to fellowship with God face to face, right? We will finally have all of our sin nature removed. No more temptations, no more flaws, no more sinful thoughts, no more sinful desires, but only a pure desire for Jesus and the ability to have a personal face-to-face -face relationship with him. That's what makes heaven, heaven. Most non-Christian philosophies assume that death is the final point of life, right? Death is the end. After you and I go into the ground, then that's the end of the story. But the Bible insists otherwise, right? We've, we've seen that in Genesis that God did not design humanity or the universe with death in mind, when we see death, we need to understand that this is not how it's supposed to be. God is going to someday fix this. And so someone who says that they understand last things, if you're talking with your Christian friends, it's, it's cool to have, to have charts and graphs and all these things, but really, a Christian's understanding of, of last things is most obvious at their funeral service, Right? That is where death becomes real. And that's where our theology, our understanding of what do I believe about last things is put to the test. You know, God has not told us not to sorrow, but he has told us do not sorrow as those who have no hope. Right? God has said, hey, look, death is a reality in this sin-cursed earth. But we understand as believers that someday death will be no more. Our crying reminds us that, that death is not natural, right? Death is not normal, right? Humans are not designed to accept death, 
right? God has not designed us to die, but right now death is in our world. But we as Christians understand that we have a hope that there is a day that death will be no more. And so in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 through 18, Paul writes to the church in the Thessalonians, and he says, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as those who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. Right? And, and the Bible likes to use that word asleep to describe death, which I, I think is, again, a, a beautiful confirmation that death for the believer is, is temporary. Right? Whenever you and I sleep, hopefully we wake up. Right? And when the Bible describes death as sleep, that means that someday we will wake up. And, and the Bible tells us that our, these literal physical bodies that you and I have will someday be resurrected. But until that time happens, the Bible says that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, right? And that's the hope that you and I have as believers. You know, even the way we do our burials signify this hope, right? Our placing the body in a casket reminds us of the metaphor of sleep, right? We, we put the body in a small bed, if you will, right? And then our burying the body in the earth reminds us that we are only creatures formed from the dust, but we are also creatures who will be one day called back out of the dust, right? Just as God originally created man from the dust, the Bible says that all of believers will be raised from their graves someday, right? That the graves will burst open and the body that you have now will be transformed and you will meet the Lord in the air, right? It's going to be awesome. That's something that, that we can look forward to, that we have the hope that death is not the end. We don't just go into nothingness. We don't go into limbo. But whenever we leave this body, we're with Jesus. And someday this body will, will catch up with us, right? And be transformed and perfected and made whatever your ideal body is. That's what you'll have, right? <laughs> but even better, right? God has a, a beautiful plan and vision to restore his image in us. Resurrection is the ultimate hope of the believer. And again, we have that hope because of Jesus' resurrection. Right? He shadowed, he foreshadowed that for us whenever he himself resurrected from the dead. That is the hope that you and I have, that someday we will experience that as well. So finally, when we understand that the Bible, what it teaches about the last things, we understand that it affects our lives today. Right? So again, we, we haven't had the time to run through the timeline of Revelation or all the symbolism, all these things. But we do need to understand that what the Bible teaches about the last things has relevance to understanding other doctrines, other foundational teachings of Scripture, and also has relevance to your life and my life today. A Middle Eastern terrorist in the verge of, ex of execution understood well the importance of last things. As the thief on the cross looked at Jesus, he said, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Even the thief on the cross understood that Christ was coming back, that there would be a solution to this problem. Right? I think that's a beautiful picture. You have this, this guy who is being crucified for his crimes, and in the midst of that, he looks over at Jesus, and the phrase that he utters has to do with last things. He, he could have said many, many things. He says, hey, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Even he understood that this Messiah, this Savior, is coming back, and he's going to set up his kingdom. And so this is relevant for us, so we have to understand that uh, when it comes to justice, right, that God will one day come back and make all things right. Why is it that, that Christians are not vengeful people? Why is it that you and I don't take revenge? Why is it that, that we can trust that with all the evil in the world, that it will one day be addressed? Because we understand that, according to what the Bible teaches about the last things, is that God will judge everyone, right? There will be no evil thing that goes unaddressed, right? No one will be exempt 
from standing before God and giving an account for what they have done in this life. And that gives us an understanding that our God is just. And again, how, how can we trust that God will do that, right? That goes back to our understanding of the, of the Trinity, right? Is that God has been just forever. He's been just to himself in eternity past. He has always been just, and he's promised to remain so. And so we can trust that God will always be a just God that does not let sin go unpunished. And because he is loving Father, he will make all things right. Right? Because God is our loving Father, He will bring us into His house and everything will be made right again. Right? And that's the hope that we have. Um, as I was studying one of the authors, Russell Moore, uh, he had this really unique point that I th- thought was intriguing, um, that even our view of last things affects how we parent. Right? I'm not a parent yet, hopefully someday soon. Um, but even our understanding of last things affects, whether we realize it or not, how we do parenting. Um, a father disciplining his child communicates to the child the discipline and judgment of God in ways far more impactful than just listening to a Bible lesson. A, a parent who will not discipline a child for disobedience is teaching that child not to expect consequences for their behavior, right? Right? A a parent who will not discipline is denying the doctrine of hell. Have you you ever thought about that? Why why is it that God has called us to discipline our children? A, it's good for them, right? Sure. But also, God has called us to discipline because if we fail to do so, we are not communicating the truth that the Heavenly Father will someday judge you as well, right? We as Christians, as Christians, as Christian parents, need to understand that even our discipline reflects our understanding of last things. Because we understand that God will judge everyone according to what they have done, right? And God does not let sin go unpunished. And so parents, we are called as Christian parents, someday Christian parent for me, that we are called to lovingly discipline our children because we love them, right? And also to emulate the fact that, hey, just like I am casting judgment on you now for what you have done, that also provides an opportunity, probably after the discipline is over, to explain that God in heaven will also judge you for your sin. And so that is why we cannot let sin go unpunished, because God will not let sin go unpunished either. Also, again, this understanding of last things relates to how we view ourselves, how we view each other, right? Why is it that we don't show favoritism? Why is it that there's no racism? Is because we understand that at the end, God brings all his people together and we're all on the same plane, right? God's not going to say, hey, you're from America. You guys are going to be in the top shelf in heaven, right? right? God doesn't play favorites. He doesn't care what you look like or where you're from or what you grew up in. We, were all, we will all be one in Christ as the bride of Christ. And so a church or a people that show favoritism, uh, that harbor racism, they don't understand where we're going. They don't understand that heaven is not going to have any of that, right? God doesn't have um, quality control (laughs) as to who gets in, right? The only only, uh, requirement is that you and I trust in Christ. Again, it doesn't matter what culture they have, what they look like, what their economic class was. God puts us all on the same field. And so when we fail to do that, we're failing to remember what the Bible teaches about where we are going. We're failing to understand what God has taught us about the bride of Christ. All believers from all time together. It also has a lot to do with how we view the church. We talked about this a little bit last week, right? Who, who is Christ coming back for? The church right? Who is going to be the the focus of the heavenly party? It's Jesus and his bride, the church, right? That's who Christ is coming back for, and that's why the church is so important. Um, Hebrews 10.25, which we talked about last week again with attendance, says, not neglecting to meet together, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So what is the motivation here for attending together, for gathering together with believers, is that Christ is coming back. 
And so when Christ comes back, will he find us a united, loving, gospel-preaching church, or will he find us arguing over the carpet? Right? What type of church will he find when he returns? And also with church discipline, right? When we allow someone who is an unrepentant sinner to remain a member of a local church, we are um, lying to him with the lie of the serpent of Eden himself. Remember what did, what did Satan say to Eve? You will surely not die, right? When we allow someone who names the name of Christ to go on with unrepentant sin and remain a member of the church, we are saying, hey, we know what the Bible says about sin and judgment, but we don't love you enough or care enough about it to really help you with that. We're just going to let that slide, right? We're, we're communicating that we don't really have the same view of sin and judgment that God does. And when we take communion together as a church, when we do the Lord's Supper, right? Again, that's a, that's a dress rehearsal for the final wedding, right? For the final marriage supper of the Lamb. Everything we do as believers is not only in obedience to what God has called us to do, but looking forward to something else. Looking forward to when it all comes together, when the story is concluded. And probably relevant for us as, as Americans is that it'll help us not be so attached to this world, Right? We talk about on Sunday how, how blessed we are. If you and I are in this room, right, we're in the top 0.01% of the world, right? We have a lot, whether we realize it or not. We are blessed with so much, and we, we can become attached to those things, right? The, these things that will someday burn up can have a tremendous grip on our heart. We get so caught up with planning our lives here and now that we neglect our eternal rewards, that we neglect our eternal home. And so we have to understand that we have to set our affections on things above. Right? We have to desire heavenly treasures, not earthly treasures. And that will change how we view things. That will change how we view money. That will change how we view what God has given us to steward. Right? And I think this is especially hard, again, for us, for myself as Americans, because we have so much. Right? And everything in our lives... And what our culture tells us, anyway, needs to be centered around what we have and what we don't have and getting what we don't have, right? Whereas Jesus constantly is telling us, hey, guys, give that up. It's not going to last anyway. I'm trying to give you something that is permanent, that is eternal, and that is far greater. So when we understand last things. We understand where this story is going. We won't become so attached to the things of this world. Jonathan Edwards, he was a great preacher from... Uh, back in the day in the 1700s, he had a, a sermon called The Christian Pilgrim. And in there he said, We should desire heaven more than, than the comforts and enjoyments of this life. Our hearts ought to be loose to these things as that of a man on a journey. These things are only lent to us for a little while, but we, we should set our hearts on heaven as our inheritance forever. Right? The things that you and I have will be gone before you know it. You and I will be gone before you know it. And when that day comes, what will you be left with? Right? The Bible says you will either, whenever you are judged by God as a, as a Christian, he will judge your works and he will essentially put a match to it. And all the wood, hay, and stubble, all the things that don't matter will just burn up right, and become nothing. But the things that you've done for Jesus, the things that, that matter for all of eternity, will last so man is trying to constantly make this world a better place. And we've come a long ways with all of our technology and all of our advancements, but really all we've done is making the world a better place to go to hell from, right? We still haven't found a way to make that utopia. We still haven't found a way to rid man of his sin problem. But the world is, is in such a mess today because things are out of place. King Jesus belongs on his throne, the church belongs with the groom. The criminal, Satan, belongs in prison. But none of these things have yet taken place. But one of these days, it will. One of these days, this story will conclude and we'll understand the way things are meant to be. And so our hearts should say to the Lord this prayer. And this is something that I read from, from John Piper. He wrote, that I know my life here on this journey is very short compared to eternity. 
I know that this world is a battlefield of indescribable carnage as unbelief and sin send people into eternal misery. I know that there is incomparable glory and joy promised to those who will suffer with Christ in the warfare of the gospel. And I know, O God, how prone I am to retreat from the field of battle to try to have the ease of heaven now without following Christ into combat. Guard me from this folly. Keep my mind awake to eternity. Give me the compassion of Christ. Thrill me with the adventure of cosmic combat and the power of the Holy Spirit. Put me on the offense with Jesus. And give me the endurance and the struggle till he comes or until I die. I think that's a really good prayer, right? That's a very uh, deep prayer that understands where we are going as Christians. One of my favorite old songs that, that deals with this is, It Will Be Worth It All When We See Jesus. Right? The, the struggles, the trials, the sacrifices that you and I make now may, may be difficult. But when you and I are looking Jesus in the face, it will be worth it. Right? That's something that we can rest our hope and our faith in. And so in the end, God wins. Satan, sin, and death are defeated. And we will be united with Jesus and under his loving rule forever. And so for us as Christians... Our understanding of the last thing should help us understand that the best is yet to come. Right? God is on his throne and he will be victorious. But the question is, whenever he returns, will he find us faithful? Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for the opportunity we've had to walk through uh, your, your teachings and scripture. Thank you for showing us uh, where uh, this story of humanity is going. Thank you for showing us that in the end that you do win, that you do make all things right, that you do finally free us from the bondage of sin and our sinful natures, Lord. We thank you that we have that hope. I pray that you would uh, just infuse that into our hearts and may the urgency um, of eternity uh, be more real to us on a daily basis so that we can share the gospel, that we be intentional, that we be courageous, so that regardless of where we are or what the circumstance is, that we would understand that people have a soul that will spend an eternity somewhere. And that it's our job, it's our mission while we are here on this earth to share the, the love of Jesus with them. Give us that courage, give us that eternal perspective that does not get caught up in the things of this world. And may we be faithful servants of you. Pray, pray and ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.